Let's open our Bibles together to Ezra chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 9 through 15 again this week. We'll focus in on the last part of verse 14. Ezra chapter 10, begin reading in verse 9. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do His will. And separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people. It is the rainy season and we're not able to stand in the open. Nor can the task be done in one or two days. For we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly. And let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of each city until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this with Meshullam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supporting them. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come before you this morning, We know for certain we shall be challenged by your word. We cannot come into your presence and not realize the depth of our own sin. We cannot approach our holy God and not be aware of the sinfulness of our lips. But God, we do not dwell in that sin. It is not a part of us anymore. We have a new nature. We have a glorious dress. And that is Jesus, His blood, and His righteousness. It pleased you from all eternity past knowing that we would turn away from You, that we would follow our own hearts, that we would seek our own understandings. It pleased You from eternity past to call us to Yourself. Before the heavens were made, the names of Your chosen were written. And so, God, teach us today as we open Your Word, as Your Spirit is here in our midst, and let us hear a word from You. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our great High Priest. Amen. We again consider the 14th verse of Ezra 10. And as we do so, we come to what is given as the reason for the people's repentance. It's, if it's not the main reason, 
it's certainly the outcome that the people would rather avoid. They say, until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. And I would like to consider this morning this verse in two pieces. First, I'd like for us to together look at the word until. Until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. If you just pull out the relevant pieces, the barest essentials of that sentence, until the fierce anger of God is turned away from us. There is a lot of repentance in our day that goes until. Or put another way, there are a lot of people who will repent of sin until. And what I mean by this is that people feel conviction for their sin or they see the negative results of their sin and they repent until. Until that feeling of conviction goes away or until the difficulties they're having are resolved or until they find a way to justify their sin to their own satisfaction or until something else comes along that eclipses their zeal for God and His holiness. There's really nothing more tragic in many people's lives than repentance until. It gives a sense of do-gooderness without paying the price of true repentance and faith. It's a person telling themselves, I'm good enough. I don't have to go any further. It is the spiritual equivalent of a participation trophy. Paul warns the Corinthians against that very attitude in 1 Corinthians 9.24 when he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Fighting against sin accomplishes nothing if we give up before we win. Even in our sports, we almost abhor someone who gives up because they think they've done enough, but who do not put forth the effort to win. But souls every day are settling for a loss because the effort for a win is too great for them to endure. Now I said that this repentance until marks many in our day, but we would be entirely wrong to read it that way in our passage. I only mention the negative connotation first because it's very easy to read this passage in that manner. Like what they were saying is that we know God is really angry with us, so we will do just enough to satisfy Him. But that's not what they're saying. But that picture could very well come to our minds because in other places in the Old Testament, we see God relent from the calamities that He had sent because of the repentance of the people. 
For example, when David conducted the unfaithful census of the people, God sent a plague that raged through the land. And that plague burned through Israel. And David purchased the threshing floor of Arauna to build an altar to God, hoping to stop God's judgment there. That very threshing floor that became the foundation of the temple. And so we are told in 2 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 24, David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. We could also consider other times when the prayers of God's people turned back to His wrath. We could look at other times where repentance itself turned back God's wrath. Remember Nineveh. When, Joseph, or when Jonah went and preached to them a very simple message, begrudgingly, repent because God's going to destroy you. But the people of Nineveh repented and God withdrew His judgment at that time. The only problem with looking at our passage in Ezra in that way is that there is no evidence of any judgment that was already occurring. There wasn't a plague of locusts. There weren't foreign invaders who had come onto the land. They were not in the midst of a famine or a drought. Certainly it was raining heavily, but it was the rainy season. And we're not told of any calamity that this was causing save the discomfort of some of those who were gathered in the rain. The season was in the middle of winter and the crops weren't even in the fields to be affected. There was no calamity. There was no judgment of God that was active. There was nothing that they were trying to stop other than the displeasure of God. And so if they weren't looking to stop the judgment of God in its progress throughout the land, what does the until mean? Why does it say until the burning anger of the Lord has been taken away? It is the until that says they will not stop until this sin is purged completely. It only takes a little sin to disrupt our fellowship with God. Recall that after Israel under Joshua conquered by by God's hand the city of Jericho, one man, Achan, took loot from the city against the express instruction of God. So that when they fought against their next opponent, Ai, they were routed in battle. And when Joshua sought God and asked why they had lost, God told him this in Joshua chapter 7. We read in verses 11 and 12, God's response to him, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have stolen and deceived. 
Moreover, they have also put among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. And so when the people in Ezra's day said until, they meant that they would go until the job was done. Until the sin was removed. That until tells us that they would tolerate no sin of this type in their midst again. That is in stark contrast to that modern until I described earlier today. It's the difference between I will stop until I can get away with it or I will repent until I can resume my sin. This repentance in Ezra is a fight against sin until God is pleased. That is, until His people are holy and set apart again. Christian, never be satisfied in your battle against sin in your life until the enemy, that sin, is entirely defeated. And then remain on your guard, looking to see if there remains some life or some power to tempt you in its prone and bleeding carcass. Give it nowhere to hide. Pursue it to the darkest places of your heart. Find where it hides and brings you pleasure to consider it and destroy those places. Give the sin no comfort, no concern, no affection, no care. You must be relentless because if you relent, sin will again infect you and take over. It is a fight to the death. Sin will kill you if it can. You must kill it. And so your fight with sin is until. Until it is completely defeated. Until there remains no hint of life in its influence over you. Until you have closed off and secured every means of temptation it has toward you. Until you have removed the habits that took you into that sin in the past. Until your heart is unassailable by its draws and its temptations. Until you loathe the sin so that you will crush it into dust when you see any hint of it. Then you have repented until. The second thing I would like to consider in today's passage is the fierce anger of God. How exactly are we supposed to understand that today? Well, let's begin by looking at what was meant by that in Ezra's day. The term fierce anger is, a, is really interesting in both the Hebrew and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint. The term is really two words for anger that are slammed up against each other. In both languages. 
It is meant to super intensify those words. And although it would not contain the true, contain the true meaning of the term, it could be literally translated angry anger. In both, language, this con- in both languages, this convention is used to describe what is translated to us as fierce anger or burning anger. And in almost every case where this term is used, it indicates the active intervention of God in judgment or the impending threat of it. Exodus 15.7 from the Song of Moses It says, and in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger and it consumes them as chaff. In describing what God accomplished among the Egyptians in the time of Moses, the psalmist in Psalm 78, 49 says, He sent upon them His burning anger. Fury and indignation and trouble, a band of destroying angels. Isaiah 13, 9 says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and He will exterminate its sinners from it. Jeremiah 4, 8 cries out for this, put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. Even in the message of Jonah, in Jonah chapter 3, verse 9, the, re- the people of Nineveh reasoned after he had preached, who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we will not perish. And finally, I would give your attention to Revelation 16, 19, where we read the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God. It wasn't a good thing to give her the cup of the wine of His fierce wrath. The exact same terms that the people of Ezra's day are wanting to turn back. I feel certain that none of this surprises you. But the real question then follows, should we fear God's burning anger? Is that for us today? There's certainly ample scriptural instruction that Jesus has taken the burning wrath of God in our place. We can read 1 John 2, 1 and 2, where it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is a rich word and it simply means the satisfaction of divine wrath. 
So when John tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he is saying Jesus has satisfied God's wrath toward us. But then, we have Scripture that instructs us. In Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work with you in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Colossians 3, 22-25 says, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And then he goes on to explain what he means by that. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that it is from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for He who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which He has done, and that without partiality. Is that any different than the fear that the men of Judah had before God in the days of Ezra. Because they had failed God, whom they had served, who they claimed was their God. And they were about to receive the consequences of it. What about the book of Proverbs, where we are reminded repeatedly that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's Proverbs 9.10. Or look in Proverbs 14.27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. So how can we understand both of these truths? That Jesus has satisfied God's wrath toward us on the one hand. And the strong encouragements of Scripture to fear the Lord on the other. For us, on this side of the cross, it all begins with the covenant name for God. Father. 1 Peter 1, 17-19 says, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but, the pres- but by the precious blood of Jesus, as, but by the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Too many preachers I have heard have tried to reduce the meaning of this word fear to simply mean respect. And it just doesn't cut it. Now I can sympathize with them a bit. When we're told to fear God, that is not an instruction to walk in terror before Him day and night. That certainly would not be an indicator of a healthy relationship. If we meet someone who lives in abject terror of another, there is great sin on one side of that relationship. But that certainly would not be the state of a believer in Jesus Christ. 
who has been adopted by God through His calling. But to simply respect God, to simply acknowledge His power and His position, while it is a good thing to do, does not rise to the meaning of this word, fear. That word in the Greek is where we get the word phobia from. A gut-wrenching fear. And so what does it mean? Perhaps I can best explain with an illustration. And rather than choose a hypothetical one, I'll use one from my own life. When I was a grade schooler, I was guilty of breaking a rule at my school. Some of you may have been in that same position sometime. For which I was sent to the principal's office. Now there was a complicating factor. The principal lived across the street from us. And this was my first run-in with the law, so to speak. Meaning it was the first time I'd been caught. And as we discussed my guilt, he gave me two choices. I could receive a paddling from him and the matter would be resolved. Now for the younger people in this congregation, paddling is where he takes a long paddle of wood and repeatedly strikes your backside very hard. Or, my second alternative was he could call my father and allow him to take care of the matter. My choice, I made without hesitation. I bent right over. My choice was not even based on the level of physical pain I would endure in either case. My choice was because the fear of my father was greater than my fear of the law enforcement of my school. Because those two are in two entirely different kinds of fears. And I didn't fear my father because I feared his violence. I feared the disruption in our relationship. And I was willing to take any amount of pain to avoid that. The fear of God because of His judicial position and His wrath as the judge of all people is a fear that is left for unbelievers. Matthew 10, 28 Jesus is talking to the crowd and He says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Unbelievers have every right to walk in abject terror before God. And I pray that that terror brings them to repentance through God's kindness. But for the believer, the fear of God is the fear of an angry father. And if we disobey God, we are right to fear His burning anger. Even though we are in Christ, 
and our salvation is secure, we have every right to fear God's burning anger with us. So is it healthy to fear God's wrath? If you are sinning and you have been unrepentant in it, of course it is. In the light of His grace and His mercy and His love toward us, our sin and rebellion is a far graver offense than the pagans. Christian, be sure that God's burning anger will come down on you just as surely and certainly sooner than on the unbeliever if you flaunt His commandments and rebel against Him. The unbeliever may wait until that terrible day to hear God's judgment pronounced. The believer will receive it much more quickly. But it is the measured hand of a loving Father. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, beginning in verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which addressed to you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives." It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And so, what does the writer of Hebrews mean by that you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin? I think he means that we have not completed the death of that sin. We haven't attacked it with a mortal blow. We've punched at it. We've waved at it. We've slapped at it. But we have not killed it. We have not attacked that sin with the violence that it deserves. And as a result, He reminds those Christians that God will discipline them. He will scourge, that means paddle them to remove that sin from them if they don't accomplish it themselves. And thus the fear that we have for God, real as it is, is a different kind of fear than the fear of the unbeliever. And the fear that the unbeliever should have while he remains an enemy of God. If you are in Christ, God will discipline you as a son or a daughter, but He will not pour His wrath out on you as an enemy. Perhaps that's one of the biggest differences in how you can view God. Do you see God acting toward you when you sin, acting as the judge of all people so that you fear the burning anger of His judicial wrath? Or when you sin, do you understand Him acting in His burning anger toward you as a son or a daughter who has rebelled and requires discipline? If you're a believer, the repentance and confession that God provides to you will restore that relationship. 
because we are not intended or destined to live in a perpetual state of estrangement from our Heavenly Father. Everything God has done is to bring us back to Him. Everything He has done is to bring you into a right relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. So those who are in Christ need not fear God's holy wrath of condemnation, but we fear the burning anger of a wrathful Father who does not hesitate to painfully correct us when we prove our intention to stray from His commandments. But I would be remiss if I did not mention one other thing this morning. And that is the possibility that if you say you love God, but constantly flaunt His commandments, you should not be certain at all of your status in Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.4 tells us, The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The mark of the believer is that they desire to obey God. The mark of the believer is repentance when we sin. It is the habit. It is the pattern of our life. It is also the habit, the pattern of the unbeliever to sin and to do so without repentance and without confession. Jesus said exactly the same thing. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 and following, he says, You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree, bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone, and this is where he explains what he means. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? In your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever with respect to the burning anger of God is that the believer practices repentance. The believer practices Righteousness. The unbeliever practices lawlessness. If you presume simply upon a prayer that you prayed one time to secure your salvation, but you are not seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life, take care that you're in Christ to begin with. Because if all you are producing is bad fruit, you may have a deeper problem. But beloved, if you struggle against sin, 
crying out in repentance each time you fall, no matter how many times you do fall. If you were overcome unawares by sin for which you were unprepared, but over which you were truly repentant, know that this is the nature of our battle against sin while we are still in this flesh. And we can find the comfort of God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ, through repentance and confession of your sin. Your Father is constantly calling you to come home. Let's pray. Our Father, let us hear those words. The words of comfort that you speak and the words of comfort that we find even in the discipline. Because it is only the true Son that is disciplined. All others may seem like their life is going exactly the way they want. They may have no financial worries. They may have no relationship worries. They may, to all the rest of the world, appear to have everything together. But one day, they will stand before you and hear that final verdict. Depart from me, you who practiced lawlessness. And so God, we, your children, will gladly endure the discipline. We'll gladly live to your standard. We'll gladly strive for it in our daily lives so that we may stand before You clothed in Jesus Christ and hear the words we long to hear. Well done. Enter in to my rest. We live in that hope. And we thank You because we could never have attained it. It is a gift. It is a calling. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we can pray to you. Amen.